Welcome back, my friends, to AA Recovery Interviews. I'm your host, Howard L., and I'm an alcoholic. Sober since January 1st, 1988, one day at a time. I'm grateful you've joined us. AA Recovery Interviews is the podcast where AA members share their extraordinary stories of experience, strength, and hope. My 48th interview in this podcast series introduces you to Patty D., a woman who got sober in AA when she was just 16 years old and has stayed sober more than 40 years. Back in 1981, there were few treatment options available for teenage alcoholics and drug addicts. Though neither of her parents were alcoholic, they struggled to contain Patty's erratic, wild, and reckless behavior since she first started blackout drinking at age 11. As that behavior escalated, along with the introduction of marijuana and other drugs, Patty found herself in a variety of groups and psychotherapy intended to arrest her addictions, including early exposure to AA, but none seemed to work. The fact that she blacked out virtually every time she drank made it exceedingly difficult for her to recognize the connection of her drinking to the dangerous, sordid, and often illegal activities she engaged in while drunk. Even her arrest at 15 following a car crash did little to convince her of the need to get sober. But the slippery slope got even steeper, and the accelerating consequences of her blackouts became even more severe. By the time she got sober, at an age when most people haven't even started drinking yet, Patty's brief but concentrated experience as an alcoholic and drug addict were finally enough to guide her into Alcoholics Anonymous, where she found a good sponsor and started to work the steps in earnest. She literally grew up in the fellowship, gaining a spiritual awakening along the way and the willingness to help others. Of course, the story doesn't end there. Patty is quick to acknowledge that 40 years of AA is really 40 years of one day at a time, and that her life constantly changes and evolves. She has experienced everything life has to offer, both good and bad, while remaining ever grateful that she found the program so young and with so many promising years ahead of her. I both admire and respect Patty D., and believe you'll glean much from her story whether you got sober when young or old, recently or many years ago. So, sit back for the next 60 minutes and enjoy this calming yet captivating interview with my friend and AA sister, Patty D. My name is Patty and I'm an alcoholic. Hi, Patty. Hi, Howard. Welcome to the AA Recovery Interviews podcast. I'm so glad you could be here today. You're joining us from... I live in Alexandria, Virginia. It's right by D.C., we met, I guess, probably a couple years ago, year and a half. We've been in a lot of the same right. Zoom meetings together, and I've just enjoyed your sharing to no end. It's a great meeting. feel like I've gotten to know you somewhat, but like five minutes at a time <laughs> over the course of a year. Yeah. And so this is such a marvelous opportunity to get to know you better and find out a little bit more about your story. And uh, you, how long have you been sober now? I have been sober 40 years. 40 years. Wow. And your sobriety day? It's June 1st of 1981. So what was going on in May of 1981 that made you say with a smile, I think I'll go to <laughs> AA? <laughs> well, I'm pretty sure I didn't have a smile, but I did wake up one day and say, I'm going to need to do something to get the heat off. My sister had already come into recovery and I knew that she was in AA. I didn't know much more about AA than that. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the circumstances of my life were all pointing in the wrong direction, even as young as I was. And I was pretty sure my parents were working on committing me to a locked ward. 
In fact, I was very certain that was what was going to happen. And so what tipped the scales was I, I knew that they didn't lock the doors in AA. Uh-huh. And, and I really came to stay out of that situation. I, I didn't come to get sober. I didn't think I was going to find anything there that would be of value to me. And I didn't plan to stay. And I, I found all sorts of things I never imagined, um, including uh-huh. people who drank like me. <laughs> So the, my, my main motivation for coming to Alcoholics Anonymous was to get the heat off. When you uh, came to AA, what were your expectations? Uh, you said you, you didn't think you were going to have to stay. What did you think AA was going to do for you and in how long? Well, I, you know, I had been through some other programs already. My parents, my parents had sent me to a couple of different places. Mm-hmm. I had been to therapy. I, thought, I think I thought it was just going to be some sort of self-helpy therapy kind of thing where people sat around yeah. and, um, you know, talked about being drunks. Uh-huh. And I figured I would just need to do it for a few months and then I could resume my, my life as, as I wanted. You know, I really, I didn't think I was an alcoholic. I, I thought people were mm-hmm. paying way too much attention to what I was doing and how I was doing it. So I thought, you know, if I could just mm-hmm. divert their attention for a small period of time, then I could return to my life as I wanted to live it, which was pretty much, you know, getting drunk and stoned as often as possible for as long as possible. Yeah. So at what point during the first few months that you were in AA was that notion actually quashed? You know, I don't, I don't know exactly what point. It wasn't like a switch. It was more like a dial. Being in a room full of people that were significantly older than I was, at the time, they, uh-huh. there weren't a lot of 16-year-old drunks in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous in 1981. But listening to what people were talking about, it was, and it wasn't the circumstances, because you know I wasn't married. I didn't have a family depending on me that I was disappointing all the time, but I knew I was disappointing my family. And so it wasn't the circumstances, it was the feelings. Mm-hmm. And you know, at that point in time, I don't think I could even really articulate what I was feeling. But when somebody mm-hmm. shared in a meeting... I could relate. You know, it was, I feel that. I've done that. I've had those yeah. thoughts. That's happened to me. And, you know, it was just sort of like a gradual wearing down <laughs> of of the hard shell, you know, that I had put up. Yeah. Because I didn't come to AA to, to get sober, I wasn't really sober. Um, when I walked through the doors and I didn't really make a commitment to stop, I didn't drink again, but I, you know, I was still doing drugs. And so... You know, I really came in in March, okay. and it wasn't until June that I decided I really was going to try this sobriety thing. So when you came in in March, were you going to meetings but also drinking? Uh, was it that you hadn't stopped until June? I wasn't drinking, but I was still doing drugs. Well, that's, I think, the, uh, a pretty familiar story for a lot of people um, coming in and, and thinking that they can do other things until somewhere along the way people say, you, you probably should stop smoking grass or you should probably stop taking those little nasty pills. You mentioned that, that the family was trying to get you committed. Um, most families don't do that for family members who are doing all right. Uh, what... <laughs> What was going on in your life during that period of time at 16 or earlier that made your folks feel like they wanted to put you away somewhere? Well, um, you know, being a parent now um, and and having raised two children, mm-hmm. I really I really don't know how my parents stood it. Actually, I don't know how they made it mm-hmm. through and how we all survived. Mm-hmm. But you know, I started I started drinking when I was 11. 
Um, neither of my parents, you know, were, were alcoholic drinkers. In fact, my mom was almost a teetotaler. You know, she would drink on occasion. And my father drank and, and my parents entertained. And, you know, there was alcohol in our home. And, but I, you know, I don't ever remember seeing people out of control at my home or, or at occasions where, that I attended with my parents. But, but my first drink was in my parents' home and it was their alcohol. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, it was, uh, you know, I was 11 and, and my parents had had people over and there were some unfinished drinks and, uh, I don't really know why I thought it would be mm-hmm. a good idea to drink people's, unf- I had tasted drinks before mm-hmm. and there were some drinks that I liked the taste. Most of them I didn't, but, but that night, you know, I, I drank several drinks and, you know, it, it, I got that warm, fuzzy feeling kind of went through my whole body and, um, mm-hmm. and I felt sort of loose and free. <laughs> and I thought, this is great. <laughs> How can I get more of this? How can I do more of this? Um, at 11, at 11, you wouldn't think that, that I'd have much reason, uh, to want to feel that way, but, but I did. I already felt uncomfortable in my own skin. I already felt the weight of the world. Mm-hmm. Um, my parents had been through uh, some really difficult times in their marriage. My my siblings were are seven and ten years older mm-hmm. than me. They were gone from the house, and you know, I it's it's interesting because even now as adults, it's very clear to me that that we grew up very differently. My my parents were much older by the time I came along. They had very different parenting styles with me than they than they did with my siblings and. And because my siblings were gone so quickly out mm-hmm. of the house, it was like growing up as an only child. And I felt very responsible for all the feelings in my house. So what were you noticing when you were a smaller kid when your siblings, uh, was it your sister and, and... my brother. And your brother. They were still at home. Was there certain behavior or things that were going on in the home between them and your parents or just with them or just with your parents that made you think it would be okay to do what you wanted to do whenever it was that they were gone? Or what? how, how did their behavior when they were home inform what you did? Well, you know, my, my sister was going through her own issues and situations and and, you know, her relationship with my, my dad was very strained mm-hmm. and, and I didn't know the specifics, but I felt all the feelings. And, and, you know, when she left to go to college, it wasn't just like she left to go to college. It was like she left and our, you know, we, I saw her very infrequently. I knew something was wrong. And, you know, I, in my own way, <laughs> you know, I, I sought her out to, mm-hmm. to try and, and keep that relationship going, which it did, but she was, you know, I don't want to tell her story, um, but she was going through her, her own trip through her alcoholism. And, and I, I wasn't really, you know, we saw each other sporadically. We talked, you know, it was very limited and very surface. My brother was just trying to make it through high school and get out and go to college. He's one of the smartest people I know. You know, he graduated from college in two and a half years. Mm-hmm. He went, you know, through, throughout the year. He, he did every summer semester, every intermester, mm-hmm. um, and ended up graduating with a four-year degree in two and a half years. So, you know, I come from a family where education was really stressed and prized and very important. Mm-hmm. And even though 
I didn't think I was going to live to be 18. <laughs> At some point, I always thought, well, if I, if I am, mm-hmm. I'll go to college. <laughs> Looking back, how do you remember feeling as a child while your sister and or your brother were at home while you were still there? And how does that compare with the way you felt after they were both out of the house and you were the, quote, only child? Well, I mean, when they were there, it, it always felt like there was, when my, my parents were experiencing their own um, really difficult, their difficulties, uh, my mom kind of plunged into a depression. Mm-hmm. She really became almost non-functioning. And that was about the time that um, my sister had already been gone for a while, and my brother was was you know getting ready to leave the house, and I I really I felt like I was was what tethered my mom to this plane. That's a heck of a thing for a, a child to see. Did you feel any uh, responsibilities that kids shouldn't have to feel at that age? Well, I you know whether they were real or not, I felt them. Took yeah. care of my mom. I I made sure that I got up and got ready to go to school every day. I made sure she got out the door every day. You know, to to her credit, she knew that that she was in a bad way, and she she sought help. She got help. Mm-hmm. She was on a number of medications, and you know some of those were was sort of trial and error until they found the right ones. And you know sometimes she was more out of it because of the medication. My dad was. Um, not able really to deal with it. And so he was gone all the time. He had a job where he traveled, you know, some part of every month and he managed to be gone even more. And so, um, I really felt Mm -hmm. like I was the adult in the house. Um, and then when my mom got help and she, and she did, she got good help eventually. And she, she Mm -hmm. recovered from that depression and she, um, really did some hard work to, to get herself back on, on even ground. And, and then, you know, I was supposed to go back to being the kid and I really, I really wasn't able to do that. So, you know, here I was in elementary school, getting ready to go to junior high. (laughs) And I felt like this, you Mm -hmm. know, super responsible adult, but I really was a child and, you know, I was looking for something to make me feel different. And I was looking for something to, to take away what, what I was experiencing as, as the pressure of the world, my world. And, you know, I found it in alcohol and you, you can't really drink that much when you, I mean, you know, you can't really find a lot of opportunities to drink when you're 11 years old. I found the ones I could, but, mm-hmm. but what I did find was, was, was marijuana first which was very easy to come by. Mm-hmm. And then um, when I figured out that I could do both things um, and then that I could also add pills to the mix, then I was really off and running. Hmm. Your story is very similar to many other stories told by guests on the show. There are a number of interviews I've done with people who've had the exact same type of situation where they were forced into being the adult while they were still a child. And it's easy to see where seeking out relief from drugs and alcohol was the only alternative for an 11 or 12 year old kid. And I've heard that from a number, a number of guests. So when you started drinking at 11 and it immediately changed the way you felt, did you just 
go on from there to keep drinking? Or was there a period of time between when you first tried it and when you became a, a regular drinker or pot smoker? There was a, there was a little bit of, of time in between, but you know, I really, I told you I come from a, a family of achievers. And if there's such a thing as an overachiever alcoholic, mm-hmm. um, you know, I, I sought out as many opportunities as I could. And I started looking for people. I don't even know if it was conscious. I just started looking for people who who could provide me the opportunities that I sought. Uh-huh. And, you know, as I said, drugs were much more accessible um, at, to me at, at that age and at that time. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I, I, I gravitated towards people that I, you know, it's not hard to find people for doing, for doing the things you're looking for if you, you know, if you're motivated. And I was very motivated. And, you know, if there's such a thing as an instant alcoholic, um, you know, that was me. I, I never drank socially. I never, I never tried to control my drinking mm-hmm. until the very end. And, you know, I, I always drank to get drunk. I, I never drank to just, you know, get tipsy. <laughs> was there a, a particular group that you hung with to be able to do that? Or was it, were you doing that all on your own? Well, I, I found people pretty quickly that could facilitate my mm-hmm. drinking and my drugging and um and that and that circle expanded and contracted because I was also a blackout drinker from very early on um it was it was hard to maintain friendships um uh, because apparently I was a mean drunk as well um I thought I was fun <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> I was having fun I thought uh, you know the but you know I got pretty good at reading faces um the morning after or the next day um, when I would come to or I'd wake up and I, you know, you could feel the vibe in the room and, and I'd know, yeah, I'd know I, I had said or I had done something and I was going to have to make up for it. That's tough. Those blackout times are very difficult, I'm sure. When you were within these various circles that you use drugs and or alcohol with, did you get the sense that others were dealing with some of the painful emotional things and whatever else, or did you just see them having fun? And and how did you feel about that at the time? You know, I just thought we were all trying to party. We were all trying to have a good time. It was, it was kind of, it was a mix. You know, I mean, I grew up in the, I grew up in the suburbs and in the, in the beginning, most, most of the people that I hung out with were people like me. They were, you know, kids from the suburbs, mm-hmm. um, looking to, to party, to have a good time. Um, we'd end up at somebody's house where, where their parents were gone for the, the night or the weekend or whatever. Mm-hmm. But in the later years, I gravitated towards, uh, people with, you know, with harder habits, um, older, usually older than uh-huh. myself, um, people who lived on their own and in not, not that great circumstances. And my, my standards, I guess, uh, fell <laughs> as, my, as my desire to really for oblivion increased. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I, I sought out whoever could help me get there. Was your seeking of oblivion, was that concurrent with that feeling that you had that came from the family? Were you a high achiever or, let's say, even a functional alcoholic and drug addict? So, yeah. I mean, you know, considering what I, how I was living my life um, and uh-huh. the fact that I missed a lot of school or showed up and then left, you know, I managed to graduate on time. 
Um, and I did go to college. I, I got into the college that I wanted to go to, and I managed to, to huh. go to college. I was sober by the time I went to college, but I was able to do kind of all of those things. Um, I certainly wasn't. I mean, I remember a, a, I had a, a teacher uh-huh. in, jun- in junior high that tried to talk to me. You know, that she was concerned, and she she tried to make a connection. Mm-hmm. And I I remember saying I don't remember exactly what I said, but it was mm-hmm. very cruel. Yeah. I'm sure it was very cruel, and I made made you know I tried to make her feel bad for reaching out. She came into the place where I was working when I was about a year sober. Mm-hmm. She recognized me, but she wasn't sure where she knew me from exactly. And um, you know, finally she made the connection. She said, "Are are you Patty?" And she, you know, my, said my last name at the time, which was my maiden name. And I said, yes, I am. And I said, you're Mrs. So-and-so. And she said, yes. And I, she said, wow, you, you look like you're doing really well. And I said, well, as a matter of fact, I'm doing okay. And, you know, my life is very different than when I knew you. Uh-huh. And, um, you know, I said, I, I realized that you tried to reach out. She's like, it's, it's, you look like the same person, but you don't look like the same person. That was the first time that I realized, you know, I, there was a very real possibility that I wasn't going to live long enough if I, you know, at the, at the rate that I was going to ha- have a conversation like that with, with a teacher. Um, so you were sober a year and your countenance made it evident to her that you had changed. Yeah. And that's really kind of cool to hear that the way the person is viewed by the rest of the world after just one year of sobriety is so stark. That's pretty amazing. So you got sober uh, before you went to college. Could you just briefly unpack the, the high school years before you got sober? It's actually junior high. Junior high? Yeah. The, the first time that something really bad happened as a result of my drinking, uh, I was 13. And I talked to a friend of mine, my neighbor across the street, who was sort of my drinking buddy. And I talked her into skipping school with, with me. Mm-hmm. And we, uh, we decided we were going to go through my dad's bar. He had a fully stocked bar in the house. Mm-hmm. And we took shots of everything in the bar. You know, I, don't, I blacked out. I don't remember exactly when she left, but at some point she'd had enough. And I decided to go back through oh, no. all the bottles again. Oh, my gosh. And, um, and I don't remember this, but, um, when I woke up, it was the first time I woke up in restraints. I woke up in the hospital and, um, my sister did not live with us. Uh Then she had already been away from home for a while. In fact, she was sober. I didn't know she, you know, she was so, but she was sober and she was on her, she, she had gone back to school and she was on her way to, I think, to like a midterm or an exam or something. And she she had to drive by our street to get to the college mm-hmm. that she was going to. And she just had a feeling she should turn onto our street for no particular reason on a Tuesday at 2 o'clock in the afternoon or whatever it was. She came to the house and she found me. And I was unconscious. And she called 911. And I'm pretty sure if that had not happened, you know, I wouldn't have been 14. <laughs> and that was the first time that um, that anybody in the family knew that, you know, I was doing anything like that. I'm sure they had noticed a change, mm-hmm. but they probably wrote it off to teenage angst or something. 
But, um, but that was the first time that, that I had, you know, some serious consequences from my, from my actions uh, related to drinking. Sounds like a real godlike intervention occurred that day. Yeah. With your sister visiting the house when she normally wouldn't have been and you being in the situation you were in. My parents, neither one of my parents would have been home until, you know, five o'clock in the afternoon or later. So it's hard, hard to say. But and the seriousness of that situation didn't didn't register with me. I just thought, well, that was, you know, chalk that up to inexperience. I'll never do that again. But what I didn't know was that my, you know, I was already drinking alcoholically. Once I took a drink, you know, it Mm -hmm. set off a compulsion and I drank until I got drunk or until the alcohol was gone, whichever came first. And because I was a blackout drinker, I often didn't really know how much I drank. Like I would think that the night ended when I stopped remembering what happened because I didn't ever really drink any other way. I didn't have anything to compare it to. So you wake up in the hospital at 13 Yeah. after being rescued by your sister. You're strapped down to a gurney in the hospital. What was being told to you at that point by your parents or by the doctors or whatever else about your condition and, and what you needed to do? Well, you know, they, they told me in very clinical terms, the doctors are very, or whoever talked to me that, you know, that I had literally poisoned myself. Alcohol poisoning was, you know, what, what they, and they, they told me they had pumped my stomach. Mm-hmm. My throat was really sore, had like the little ring of charcoal around, around my mouth because they still use charcoal at that time when they pump your, pumped your stomach. Uh-huh. And, you know, that, that, that it was very dangerous and I could have died. And, and it just was like white noise. Um, and then I, what I was really worried about was that my parents were going to now be paying attention and that I wasn't going to be able to do, you know, I was, it wasn't going to mm-hmm. be as easy anymore to sneak in drunk or high um, or sneak out for that matter because mm-hmm. they were going to be watching. I kind of had to, to uh, up my game because I, the last thing that, that, that I would have done at that time would be stop drinking and using. You know, I mean, that, that wasn't even in my mind as an alternative. It was just, okay, this is going to get harder. Wow. So instead of being scared straight, you were just scared into different behavior. Yeah. I, I became more sneaky, you know, but, but they were more aware. And so, you know, the, it, it led to a lot more confrontations, particularly with my mother, because she was there more. Uh-huh. You know, she was there all the time. And, you know, she would confront me on my, you know, are you... Let me see your eyes. You know, have you been drinking? Uh, which I always lied. And, you know, my, my mother would say, you're such a good liar. If you told me that it was raining <laughs> orange juice, I'd have to go outside just to make sure it wasn't true. What a trait to have. That's amazing. So uh, after that occurred at 13, what, were, what was going on until you actually got sober? What were the intervening years between 13 and the age? You said you got sober at? I got sober at 16. 16. Okay. So what happened in the, the uh, succeeding three years uh, that finally something had to be done? Well, um, my parents really sort of clamped down on me. They sent me to a psychologist and, you know, I used to take great pleasure in trying to freak out the psychologist. <laughs> and, you know, I would I would usually go high to my appointments and just say the most outlandish, horrible things. And do they know or do they ever confront you on that? Well, I mean, I, they never confronted me on it, but I, the psychologist diagnosed me as, as, you know, 
being a sociopath, mm-hmm. which is, a you know, it's, that's a horrible thing. I, I really was not a sociopath. I really was just trying to be truly horrible mm-hmm. and apparently succeeded in fooling him. They put me in a Palmer drug abuse program. They took me out of school for 30 days. And, you know, I mean, this is not, this is no reflection on that program, but I managed to find the four people in that group who had no intention of staying sober, just like me. And we used mm. to just go get high. We'd go to whatever was the required meeting at the, of the day or uh-huh. period of time we had to be there. And then we'd go get high and drink. Mm-hmm. I, I, I had no intention of giving up what, a, what felt like the only thing that made the world livable to me. You know, it was the way that I maneuvered through the world. You know, I was in a meeting this morning, in fact, with someone who was celebrating one year of sobriety, someone who got sober in the pandemic through Zoom, Mm -hmm. has never really participated in meetings in person. And, you know, I'm just, I was really struck by a couple of things. Um, One, it's kind of amazing when any of us make it, right? Sure. But even more so um, when we've done it, he's done it this way. Mm -hmm. Without the human contact, it's it's all been virtual. But, you know, reinvigorated me about the power of this program. I really worried. When we went into the lock, into lockdown and people couldn't go to meetings anymore, I thought, how are we going to connect with new people? How are we going to do this thing? There are people now, too, who are continuing to participate in the program on Zoom, though there are a number of live meetings that they yeah. could otherwise go to. I'm with you. I'm amazed by how well it's worked for them. I'm a little concerned about the necessary transition at some point. These Zoom people will have to, Zoom babies, whatever we call them, (laughs) will have to experience in actually going to a meeting and being eyeball to eyeball uh, with other AA members. So you were in a a program, and a a couple of my other guests uh, were also involved with that program you talked about. You were beating the system. That wasn't really doing for you what everybody expected it would. No, and after that, I mean, I'm making it seem like there, you know, there weren't other incidents. There were. Sure. You know, there were times that I got brought home by the police. Mm -hmm. Um, It was easier for them just to bring me home than to do anything else. And there was one officer in particular in the little suburb that I grew up in that, Mm -hmm. that uh, for whatever reason, you know, he, he either felt sorry for me or, or, you know, maybe it was more paperwork than it was worth, whatever. We had a little bit of a connection. Yeah. He he would take, he would just bring me home. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, sometimes I'd be out at, you know, in the wee hours of the morning, he'd see me on the street and he'd take me home. Mm -hmm. Um, Sometimes it was, I was in a blackout. I didn't remember. Mm-hmm. being brought home by the police. But my mm-hmm. parents would tell me the next day, you know, and then of course there was the obligatory, you have to stay in, blah, blah, blah. And I just wait till they go, went to sleep and then I'd sneak out again at night. Yeah. And, but what really sort of was the big crescendo was, again, I talked to this friend of mine uh-huh. from across the street into running away. I was like, you know, this is, this is a drag. They're just, you know, our parents are just going to keep hounding us. What we really need to do is run away uh-huh. and go to Austin. So I grew up, you know, in the suburb of Dallas. And to me, Austin was the party city in Texas. <laughs> so we we stole my mother's car. I got her car keys and we stole my mother's car and we drove to Austin. And neither one of us had ever driven more than around the block by that point. How old were you at that time? I was 15. At that time. So you weren't even legal to drive. No, neither one of us were. And it it took us three days to get there. (laughs) 
because we stopped along the way and we yeah. would hook up with you know groups of people or who you know whoever would mm-hmm. you know it, and like I said it's not hard to find people to drink and drug with if that's what you if that's what you want to do and if you're good at doing it and we ended up staying with a guy and his his wife and they had a one year old baby mm-hmm. we stayed there for about a week and and his wife started to really get upset. <laughs> Oh, yeah. About these two teenage girls in their house. You know, we would just drink all day, and we were supposed to be taking care of the baby, which we did take care of the baby, not probably not as well. You know, yeah. We could have if we weren't drinking. And so she was ready to kick us out, and so um, my friend and I got in the car, and we were, we were going to just drive around and figure out what, what we were going to do next. And I, I had a big plastic tumbler full of tequila and a little bit of orange juice for show, Mm-hmm. And I was in the passenger seat. She was driving. And I'm drinking, and we're talking, and she ran a stop sign. And I said, oh, you just ran that stop sign. Don't run the ne-. And I didn't even get to finish my sentence. She ran the next one, and we got in a two-car collision. Oh, no. We just got hit, T-boned. And I got knocked out in the accident because the car mm-hmm. hit on my side. Mm-hmm. And I woke up, and she was, you know, shaking me. You got to mm. run. You got to run. And I didn't realize that I had been injured in the accident. I dislocated my shoulder and I, I was, you know, I was trying to get out of the car and my shoulder wasn't working right. And I, had, <sighs> I was drunk and, mm-hmm. and I ran, but I fell. And, mm. um, that seemed like all the police were there in a minute. It all happened very in slow motion and, and in mm. super speed at the same time. Mm-hmm. And she was able to run away and I got taken to jail. And I wouldn't tell, I didn't have any idea, I didn't have anything on me. So they didn't really know how old I was. They knew I was mm-hmm. young, they didn't know how old I was. I was covered in booze. I was drunk. They put me in a cell. You know, I'm not really sure how long I was there because I was kind of sobering up. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I wouldn't tell them who I was. And then finally, you know, the cop that, that arrested me said, you know, if you don't tell me who, what your name is and how old you are, you're going, you're going to the adult drunk tank. Hmm. And so I thought about that. <laughs> and so I told them my name and I told them how old I was. And I figured they'd call my parents and my parents would come and get me. Hmm. So they did call my parents. And what I didn't know was that my mom had started going to Al-Anon. This was probably not the first, but yeah. the first that I was aware of. Uh, her first act of releasing with love. <laughs> uh-huh. And they let me stay in jail. They let me stay in, in juvie. And, um, you know, they came and picked me up. I don't remember exactly. That was, I think that happened on a Saturday or a Sunday, and they came uh-huh. and picked me up on the following Saturday. We'll be right back. My friends, if you're enjoying AA Recovery interviews, check out my Big Book podcast, the complete, unabridged audio version of the first and second editions of Alcoholics Anonymous. It's an engaging word-for-word, cover-to-cover reading of all 11 chapters and original stories, including rare stories not published in the third or fourth editions. The Big Book podcast is produced by Howard L., who receives no remuneration for this vital AA service work. Listen to all 85 episodes by subscribing to the Big Book Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Or listen on bigbookpodcast.com. You'll know you've arrived when you see our logo, a first edition Big Book wearing headphones. And we're back. 
you were in jail, so to speak, for the better part of a week. Yeah. <laughs> and how about your friend who was driving? She went back to the house where we were. I would not tell them where she was. So they thought you were driving? Yeah. Because you were already out of the car by the time they got there. Well, they knew that somebody else, was, they weren't sure what happened. Okay. They knew, but they knew that some, there were two people in the okay. car. Yeah. So, yeah, so that was a big mess. And then I went home. Um, my parents drove me back. Actually, her father came mm-hmm. to Austin, too, and I, I wouldn't tell them where she was. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I honestly didn't know how to get where the house was, but it was in a really bad part of town. In fact, the cops uh, told my parents and, and her dad, and, and you know, this is why he was understandably so upset, they said, you know, this is not a part of town where you want runaways to be. Right. This is the life ex- expectancy out here is not high. And so she she did contact him and she came home that following week. So and then she and I, you know, our friendship was a little strained after that. Um, there was a lot, you know, there were legal issues involved. Yeah. Yeah. At that point, there was, a, you know, there was another car in the accident. There was a family in that other car. Mm-hmm. And the weird thing was my parents had a, had planned a trip to New Orleans uh-huh. The following month or something. And they still went, but they took me with them because they were afraid to leave me by myself. Uh-huh. And I managed to lose my parents every day. And do what you want to do, I'm sure. And did what I wanted to do. My mom took me out on a riverboat. Uh-huh. You know, one of those steamboats with the big paddle wheel. And, and I got high with the crew. God. I mean, I just... You know, very singleness of purpose. Yeah, where there's a will, there's a way. That's for sure. Exactly. So all of this happens. You're 15 years old. Mm-hmm. Uh, what was the defining moment or the turning point for you before you finally got sober and came into AA? Well, after the after we ran away and after all of that happened, you know, this friend of mine said, you know, there's something wrong with the way you drink. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I said, well, what do you mean? And she said, you just, she said, something happens to you. Mm-hmm. You know, after, it's like you, you, after you've had a few drinks, you just, you turn into another person mm-hmm. and there's just no controlling you. And, and I can't be responsible for you. And you, you just, you need to find something else to do. And uh, she had this brainstorm. She said, mm-hmm. you know, it's not as bad when you just do drugs. So maybe if you just didn't drink and just did drugs, <laughs> you'd be mm. okay. <laughs> yeah. And so I, I said, I thought that seemed like a solution to me. Sounds like one. And, and so I thought, well, that's what I'll do. I just, I just won't drink. Mm-hmm. You know, I can, I can still get where I want to be without, you know, and then, and then I won't be, you know, this out of control person. Yeah. And, uh, and then I, I found that I couldn't not drink. Mm. Or I'd go somewhere and I and I would have completely intend not to drink, and then I would inevitably drink something, and then I would think I'm only going to have two because you never just have one. Yeah. And then I would actually think that I had only had two drinks, but at that point I wasn't sure when I was going to black out. So I, like I said, I would think that I had stopped drinking at the point that I stopped remembering two drinks forever at that point yes so i you know it was really my my circle was getting smaller uh-huh because i was really taxing everyone's patience with my behavior even the people that 
even the people I drank with, which were, you know, a lot of, a lot of drunks and junkies, you know, I was, I was becoming more trouble than I was worth to the people around me because they had to take care of me Mm -hmm. when I blacked out. And that's when my parents were sort of, you know, circling the wagons and there were discussions about what to do with me next. And Mm -hmm. I think the option on the table was a locked ward because that's, you know, that's the kind of treatment that was available in 1981 for teenagers with drug and alcohol problems. You went to a locked ward. Mm -hmm. And so I, I went to my, my mom, I think. And I said, um, you know, I, I planned it out and I said, I said, I, I know there's something wrong with the way that I drink and I think I need help. Maybe I should go to AA. And she was in Al-Anon at that time, huh? She was in Al-Anon. Okay. So you already knew about AA. I, I knew that it existed. I knew my sister was in it and I knew that she didn't drink anymore. Mm-hmm. And so I knew that I was putting myself in a situation where I wasn't going to be able to drink for a while. It was the for a while for a while that made it tolerable to me. But I had had moments, you know, up up to this point, you know, at some at one point, my because my parents took me everywhere. At this point, they they didn't leave town and right. leave me alone. They were just too freaked out about what might happen. So we had gone to visit some friends in San Antonio, and of course, you know, I went out and got drunk one night, at least one night when we were there. But I had gone out with the intention that I was not. I really liked these people. Yeah. I didn't want to show my crazy behavior while I was. So I went out really with the intention of not drinking. Uh-huh. And I was just going to smoke pot. Uh-huh. But there were other things at the party. Sure. I ended up drinking. I ended up blacking out. And I, I came back to the house in a blackout. I don't really know what happened. But the next morning, there were all the, you know, angry and concerned faces. My parents were angry. Their friends were concerned. Yeah. And I, I really kind of had a moment of clarity in that situation. And I thought, I, I can't control this. Mm-hmm. I really can't guarantee my behavior. Mm-hmm. Even when I have the best of intentions, even when everything is on the line, even when I want to do the right thing, because it's important, I can't do it. Yeah. And I remember thinking, you know, I, I remember actually thinking, I'm going to get better at this. <laughs> I'm only 15. I'm going to get better at this. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I just have to throw more into it. You know, I mean, I, I immediately supplanted that realization with, I can, I can do it. I can, I can somehow manage this. Yeah. You know, it was not very long after that, that I, I threw out the AA lifeline card mm-hmm. And, um, and my mom started taking me to AA meetings. And that was in March of 81? Yeah, it was in March of 81. Right. So you went to meetings March, April, May. Mm-hmm. So you were still smoking pot during that time, but not drinking? Or were you still drinking? I was still smoking pot during that time. I was not drinking. Uh-huh. But then I, I met somebody, some bit, a nephew of somebody that was in the program. Uh-huh. He was not a, a member of, the, of AA, and he was not sober. Um, we, we'd been going out for a little while and we went out to a concert and, you know, he had mushrooms mm-hmm. and I was like, oh, well, that's cool. If you do them, I'm not going to do them. Right. I'll smoke a little pot. I ended up smoking pot, doing the mushrooms, but I had, I had several months of AA under my belt at that point. Mm-hmm. And, and for some reason, you know, all of the stuff that I had been hearing in meetings about the insanity of the first drink. Mm-hmm you know, the, the compulsion 
the inability to stop even in the face of all evidence to the contrary. Mm-hmm. I mean, it all sort of, you know, and I went home and without incident. My parents didn't even know. Mm. You know, I went home and they had no idea. Mm. You know, they had they had kind of that few months of, of my not drinking, they had kind of taken a breath and relaxed a little bit. So nobody knew. Mm. You know, and so my normal MO would have been nobody knew I got away with mm. it. But I knew. How did it feel sitting in those AA meetings after that experience and after you knew, but nobody else around you knew? Well, I, I mean, I, I really couldn't stay there and, and not, not, you know, say what was going on. It was, you know, I, I, something had happened Yeah. in those few months. I had gotten to see that there really was another way to live and that even though I felt like I had nothing in common, and on the surface, I had nothing in common mm-hmm. with most of the people sitting around that table. What I did have in common with them was that I felt like they felt, and that I had turned to the same solutions that they had turned to, mm-hmm. and it stopped working for me. Just much earlier than them. Yeah, and that they maybe knew how to live without drugs and alcohol, and I might be able to learn how to do that, too. What a realization to come to. Do you remember the, the first meetings? What did it feel like? It was no longer a game. It was, a, it was you know, it was no longer a ruse. Mm-hmm. It, it was no longer the means to a different end. It was really, I really did want to get sober. Yeah. You know, I really, I really did want to, you know, I mean, I wouldn't have articulated it this way at the time, but, you know, I really did want to live an authentic life. Hmm. So when you were going to those first meetings, were you putting everything out there on the table uh, as far as trying to be as honest as you could be with the group, or, or did that take a while to kind of come out? I really um, gravitated towards the person who became my sponsor. Mm-hmm. Uh, she had about five years of sobriety at that time, and you know she, she was very extroverted, very uh, gregarious person. She, um, mm-hmm. she talked about working the steps. She didn't have a lot materially, but she was a very joyful person, you know, and, and we talk about, you know, if you see somebody that has something that you want, you know, it's living the way that you, you want to live, you go talk to that person, you find out what they're doing. Mm-hmm. And, and that's what I did. And it's very funny because we reconnected, we had disconnected for a while. We reconnected not very long ago. And she said, you all, she said something to me about, you were always so willing. And I said, well, by the time I met you, I was. <laughs> She said, I just remember you being very willing and and eager and honest. And I said, well, by the time I met you were in my life, that was true. But it wasn't true before. You know, she, I don't want to tell her story, but she ended up not staying sober, but then came back into the program many years later. But she was there for me when I needed someone to take me through the steps. Mm -hmm. And, And, you know, she did. She was that person. How soon after you were in the program did she become your sponsor? Were you sponsor less for a while? Yeah, well, I would ask someone to be my sponsor, and then I would spend the rest of the time avoiding them. <laughs> That's a good approach. <laughs> it was like I, once I asked someone to be my sponsor, I would never call them right, again. Right, you know? right, so She was the first sponsor that I ever called more than mm-hmm, once. Mm-hmm. And she put you to work on the steps right away? She did. Mm. What was that like? She did. Well, you know, I mean, it was, um, we read the book. We would we would meet regularly. We would read the book. Mm-hmm. We would talk about how the how the big book takes you through the steps. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I did my fourth and fifth step with her. For me, that was really when I felt like I was in Alcoholics Anonymous and not just at Alcoholics Anonymous. There is a difference, isn't there? Yeah. It was when I did that fifth step. I think that's a turning point for a lot of people. I know it was for me, too, because you can do the first three steps in your head just by looking at them and thinking about them. But when it comes to putting pencil point on paper and then having to take those papers and read them to another person, that's work. That's real work. So you did your fifth step with her. Mm -hmm. So you're 15, 16 years old at this point. 16. What was doing your eighth and ninth steps like? Did you have a relatively small list? Because, I mean, you're so young at that point. I didn't, you know, we, we did this very ceremonious burning of my fourth step. So I didn't have my list when I got to, to eight. So I had to redo my list. But I had a lot of living amends to make because I did a lot of things you know, I broke into people's homes. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I, I mm-hmm. vandalized, I stole. I mean, I was, you know, I was a criminal. Uh-huh. <laughs> and, and I didn't know yeah. who to make amends to. And, you know, I mean, it's just sort of anonymous, you know, crimes. And, and so I, you know, we talked about that. How do I make amends for these, these you know, people? I know I've harmed people, but I don't know who they are. I don't even remember where they are. And of course I shoplifted and, stole bigger things than that to, to sell, to, you know, fuel my, my alcohol and, and drugs. You know, so we talked about, you know, I really had to be very cash register honest. Um, I had to pay for everything. If someone gave me back too much change, I had to tell them uh-huh. if, you know, if they were, if they, if, if I got more than one of something, I had to give it back. And, you know, it's really, it sounds kind of silly, but it really, it, yeah. you know, it mattered. You know, it was it was the rigorous honesty in, you know, for with training wheels, you know, <laughs> and then and then, of course, the people in my family. And so it was, you know, making direct amends for specific wrongs with with the members of my family. That must have been hard. It was hard. And my dad was the last name on my list. And, you know, I was sober several years before I made those amends. And. You know, it just was an opportunity. One night I was up late. My dad came home. It's just the two of us. Uh-huh. We were sitting across from each other in my parents' house at that time, the house that I grew up in. Uh-huh. And we just started talking, and it was the perfect opportunity. Wow. There must have been some healing that came out of that, huh? Yeah, it was. You know, we went from, from barely speaking to, you know, to really right, right-sizing that relationship, to making that right. And, you know, it's been decades since that uh-huh. that occurred, but that was the beginning of a really healing. Yeah, all by virtue of doing one, one not simple step, but one step, you got all that healing yeah. that came your way. That's a beautiful story. What was your spiritual experience like? early on in the program, and did you develop a spiritual awareness or connection, or did you have any kind of spiritual awakening that you can put your finger on? You know, I I, I did not have a white light experience. I, I didn't have, a, you know, the, the appendix in the big book talks about spiritual experience of the educational variety. You know, my, my understanding of my higher power has really changed uh-huh. over the years. You know, I grew up Catholic. And, you know, prayer right. was a ritual. You know, there was a process mm-hmm. and a procedure. And, and that didn't really appeal to me. 
And, um, you know, it really, I tried a lot of different things. I mm-hmm. went to a lot of different churches sober. Um, I never really found a church experience that, mm-hmm. that I felt comfortable with enough to, to stay in. But I always sought out, you know, people who seemed to be walking up a spiritual path. And, you know, I learned from a lot of different people mm-hmm. sober. And, you know, I, I was really blessed along the way to have people in my life outside the rooms that were really walking spiritual paths. I worked with someone who is a mm-hmm. Southern Baptist and, you know, was very uh, devout mm-hmm. in his belief. And he never, you know, tried to get me to go to church or proselytized or, but he just lived his values. You know, he lived his faith. Mm-hmm. And I just remember being very, I mean, you know, that was, I was like, wow, you know, there are people outside yeah. here trying to, trying to walk this path. There are people who, who haven't been through what I've been through. Um, they have their own story to tell and, you know, and they're, and they're seeking to do the right, you know, do the right thing as well and, and be one among many mm-hmm. and, and give back, you know, not just take. And I, I just, you know, I, I, I feel like, you know, that, that there were a lot of teachers yeah. through my sobriety being open to the, to the experiences has also, you know, just been really served me well. I get that. It's, it's absolutely what the 11th step is talking about, the improvement of our spiritual condition through prayer and meditation, education, observing other people. Obviously, there's a lot of that that goes on. I didn't know very much about, I didn't have a very good concept about God. And like you, I was very turned off by the the rigors and the discipline of, of traditional religion, but sounds to me like you found a way to improve your spiritual connection. Is that a fair statement? I think so. You know, I've, I've lived most of my life, you know, sober in Alcoholics Anonymous. There have been times when I walked away uh-huh. from the spiritual life. I've had the experience of taking back my life and my will and trying to run it sober. Yeah. Um, and I will tell you uh-huh. <laughs> that living with all of those character defects uh, is incredibly painful when you're not trying to walk a spiritual path. And uh, and I refer to those years as the years that I was stark raving sober. Huh. Um, and, you know, I, I came back to I was unfortunate. I got to come back without having to drink to do it. At what point did that happen for you? You say you were stark raving sober. So I know for a lot of people with years or decades of sobriety, they do sometimes get to a point in their sobriety where there's a hiatus or there's some sort of upheaval that goes on that makes them turn elsewhere. When did that happen for you? And has it happened more than once during your sobriety? Well, it happened for me around 16 years. It, you know, it started, it started with just kind of not going to meetings. Huh. You know, just sporadic attendance or not attendance at all. Uh-huh. You know, I even there was even a time when I went back to the religion of my youth when my kids were born. Mm-hmm. I I went back to the. I thought it was important to have some kind of foundation for them, and I I tried to go back to church, and and uh, that was really difficult. <laughs> I know that experience <laughs> firsthand. <laughs> you know, and I ended up I ended up with more than twenty years of sobriety hitting a new bottom sober. You know, I, I got into a situation at work, 
uh, where I had to face some consequences of my own actions mm-hmm. and and had to face them sober. And I was literally in bed, like I had been in bed for like two days, mm. like, you know, in a little ball. Mm-hmm. And um, my husband came in. He had found my big book. Mm-hmm. I don't know where. I honestly do not know where it was. He found my big book. He had it open mm-hmm. to the third step prayer. And he said, Patty, <laughs> we're going to read this prayer. You're going to take a shower and we're going to go to a meeting. And we read the third step. He read the third step prayer to me. And I got up. I get teary when I think about this. I got up. I took a shower. And we found a meeting to go to that night. That happened at, you say, 20 years? More than 20 years. What, so your husband, he's also in the program? He is. So he was able to notice what was going on and what a stroke of genius picking up the, the book and just the simple things he asked you to do. That's amazing. So how long did it take you from that point to kind of get back toward, did you seek the middle again or were you still kind of on the fringes of the program after that. Well, I for a while I felt very defeated. Did you? Well, just because I had I felt like I I've, I've been doing this, you know. I've done this. I've I've already I'm now I've now been sober longer than I've been a you know, longer than I lived drunk. Right. And, you know, is this going to work for me? Is is the answer here? After 20 years you're thinking this to yourself? Yeah. That's amazing. You know, I think listeners who are wondering what it's going to be like if they ever make it to 20 years are probably incredulous uh, when they hear that. Uh, that but, Well, there's more to the story. <laughs> That's, you know, how I felt when I first came, started going back to meetings. But but it, there was something there. You know, there, there there is something that happens in those in those AA meetings that I still go to to this mm-hmm. day. Um, there is something about one alcoholic sharing with another. Um, there is something about trying to uh, make conscious contact, yeah. you know, for today. And I found that peace again. Mm-hmm. And really the only place I've ever been able to find it and maintain it is when I'm trying to work the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. Mm-hmm. To this day, my, my morning meditation usually ends with the third step prayer. You know, I have a few other things that I do. And and ironically enough, my my mornings are are kind of a ritual yeah. that I go through. You know, I have a some prayers and a meditation that I try to do every morning. I try to do um, upon awakening right out of the book. Mm-hmm. It's not brain surgery. It's pretty simple. Mm-hmm. Um, and I usually end that period with the third step prayer. It must have been difficult for you during that period of time and then to come back and then build from that point forward till now you're able to wake up and have those thoughts and prayers upon your lips and upon your heart. That's a, a really, it's a beautiful outcome to what was, I'm sure, a very dark time in your sobriety. Can you think of some, some other times that, that might have been pivotal within the, I mean, we're talking 40 years yeah. here, but it sounds like after that awakening, at 20 years, you became much more involved and, and centered. Can you think of some other times that, that uh, either good or bad, that are kind of defining moments for you as a sober alcoholic in AA? Well, my family has just been through one of those kind of pivotal moments. Um, we lost my mom about 12 years ago, uh-huh. and um, that, that was hard for all of us. She was, she was the glue that held us all together. Mm-hmm. And, you know, of course, my, my sister and I were sober. 
through that. Mm -hmm. We were there. We were at her bedside. My brother was on a plane back from China, uh, and I had to call and leave the message. Mm -hmm. Please call me right away. It's mom. Things are not good. Which he got uh, when the plane landed in, in Chicago, and he called me immediately. And he just, you know, got off the plane, told his wife and his sons that he had to catch a plane to to Dallas. And mm-hmm. we were all there together with my dad. That was very difficult, but we, you know, we, I, I felt like nothing was left unsaid. Uh-huh. There were no loose threads. Uh-huh. There was no strife. Yeah. You know, that relationship was, was fully mended and, you know, we had wonderful years together. She was a wonderful mother. She was a wonderful grandmother mm-hmm. to my kids. And, you know, I really had a wonderful example in her. Um, but I, I say that to say that, you know, what we've been through most recently is with my dad. He just turned 90. He is experiencing dementia. He, he really has no short-term memory. And um, I just, uh, it's something that my brother and my sister and I all sort of work together to to figure out the best path for my dad. Mm-hmm. You know, he he was living on his own until recently. Wow. And, um, you know, I spent six weeks at his house living with him until we could, mm. uh, until we, that was the short term plan, until we had a longer term plan. Mm-hmm. You know, we, it was, I'm, I'm really, I'm really happy that I was able to do that, that, you know, one of the weird sort of Mm -hmm. good things that came out of COVID for me through all of this was that, Uh that I was already teleworking. I was already working remotely. I just did it from a different place and my employer was very understanding and, you know, I was able to be there for my dad when he really needed someone to be there and my my brother and my sister also, you know, we all sort of work to our strengths yeah. and, and we're able to come up with a plan. Mm-hmm. And my dad's now in assisted living, mm-hmm. um, five minutes from my sister. Oh, that's great. Um, you know, we, he was living in a town, the closest one of us was five and a half hours away. And then, and so now he's five minutes away, you know, making the adjustment really well. And, he because he trusts that we have his best interests at heart and that we're going to do the right thing. I can imagine how that never would have come about had you and your sister not been sober and had the kind of connection with good orderly direction on a daily basis from your higher power. That's right. And what you've described with your mother and your father, you know, these are bittersweet occurrences, but in a way they're kind of joyful when I have to look back on my father's death and my mother's death as difficult and extraordinarily horrible as their deaths were, I have to look back with a certain amount of joy that I had a program to go to to help me during those periods of time. I remember going to meetings on the exact same day the folks died yeah. and were there and able to be there. And the message that that sends to people in the room about where to go when you need people was was profound. Did, did you kind of find the same thing as you were engaged in AA during those times? You know, having, having that network of people was so important. Um, you know, when my mom passed, it was sort of the net that caught me. Uh-huh. <laughs> and dur- during COVID, 
Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I mean, there were articles written about it, you know, about how people in, in AA already had a strategy, a, a, me, a means by which to get through this pandemic, an interconnectedness that, you know, already existed mm-hmm. before everything shut down. Yeah. And that's been true for me. That experience has been true for me that, you know, even though I, even, even though sometimes my world felt very small because I wasn't going anywhere mm-hmm. or very, very limited interaction outside my home, you know, I actually made more meetings during the pandemic because I was able to do so by Zoom. And, you know, and I got to actually, that's how I met you, Howard. I mean, that's how I got to know you was because I was able to join a meeting on Saturday mornings mm-hmm. that most of the attendees are in Houston, Texas, but I got to join from Northern Virginia and expand my circle. And, um, yeah. you know, if there's, if there's a, a silver lining to that gray cloud, that's certainly one of them. Yeah. Yeah. I would agree with that a hundred percent. And what's interesting is as I've been doing these interviews, especially people like, like you and your sister, who've got multiple decades of sobriety, sometimes I think it's a little difficult for the newcomer to be able to look at that and be able to identify with it. What do you say to the newcomer who says to you, well, of course things are going well for you, Patty. Look at all the time you've been sober. Or the the thinking that some people have that I had when I was new in sobriety. Oh, he's been sober 10 or 20 or 30 years. He can't possibly have a problem. His And I equated longevity and sobriety with a life that was never threatened or weighed down by any controversy or trouble. How do you address that when somebody says, well, of course, you must be much happier because look how long you've been sober? You know, I have to tell myself this sometimes uh, because I, I put expectations on myself, too. I've been around forever. Why? <laughs> I shouldn't be sad. I shouldn't be angry. Uh-huh. Um, you know, but it really the, the real answer is I really only have a daily reprieve. Yeah. You know, I really it really does come down to one day at a time. I'm as close to a drink as I ever was. Mm-hmm. And as my story really illustrates, um, once I take a drink of alcohol, all bets are off. If that were to happen to me today, if I were to drink today, I have no idea where I would end up. I have no idea if I would make it back. Um, there are no guarantees. And, yeah. and I really, my sobriety really is a daily reprieve contingent upon my spiritual condition. Mm-hmm. It comes down to the same things that I did yeah. 40 years ago to get so- sober yeah. and stay sober. Um, I really only have this day. I always try to make the best of it. Sometimes that's yeah. not 100%. You know, the, the best I can do is, is, is 50, then I, you know, that's the best I can do. <laughs> <laughs> You know, I could see it's working for you. I can tell by your lovely smile and and the the brightness of your face as we've been talking about the gifts and about what AA has meant to you. And I so appreciate the fact that you've been willing to do this today and and share just a piece of your life with us. You know, one of the things I wanted to do whenever I started this podcast was I said, I want to know more about what happened between the day you got sober and 40 (laughs) years later that you're still sober. But I've come to realize that for most people who really get the program, it really is is a daily gift. It's not any one big gift. It's the all the 
the days that we wake up and we're glad to be alive or we wake up and we're feeling miserable, but we know we won't feel miserable forever. We have that kind of assurance. Well, you said it, Howard, this too shall pass. Yeah, and it always does. You're an extraordinary person, and I love you, and I appreciate your wisdom in all the meetings we've gone to, and uh, I just want you to know how grateful I am that you did this today, and thanks so much. Thank you, Howard. I love you, too, and thank you for asking me. It was my pleasure. Well, my friends, that's a wrap for AA Recovery Interviews. Thanks to Patty D. for sharing her story, and thank you for tuning in. If you enjoyed AA Recovery Interviews, will you help me spread the word by recommending it to everyone you know? That includes sponsees, sponsors, friends, loved ones, and anyone else seeking a rich and meaningful listening experience. As the number of listeners grows, this podcast will be of help to more and more people. And if you leave a multi-star rating where you get this podcast, that'll help others find it more easily, too. Of course, you can follow us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Pandora, Spotify, and other podcast providers. Or tell Siri, Google Assistant, or Alexa... Play AA Recovery Interviews podcast. Or visit our website, aarecoveryinterviews.com, to listen to every interview, share your comments, and also contact us. If you want to email me directly, it's Howard at aarecoveryinterviews.com. By the way, this podcast strictly adheres to AA's 12 traditions and all general service office guidelines for safeguarding anonymity online. I pay all production costs, no advertising is allowed, and no one receives financial gain from the show. AA Recovery Interviews and my guests do not speak for or represent AA at large. This podcast is simply my way of giving back to AA that which has been so freely given to me. The next episode of AA Recovery Interviews is on the way, so keep coming back. It'll be here soon. 